This podcast is dedicated to the Dakota people. We acknowledge the people who care for the land on which our community and building are built. Thank you. This is episode two of Ian and Mark, two cloppers from the 90s. Let's pick up the discussion roughly where we left off, the students' co-op's position in a larger community of communities. To your question about what it was like in the 80s versus the 90s and making it more egalitarian, there were some crises that we heard about in the 80s. Like, for example, there was supposedly, I don't know the details around this, but supposedly the co-op was very close to being sold by a couple of people, or maybe like over the summer while everybody was gone. And it was kind of rescued at the last minute by a few people. Um, as I said, when I moved in, there were a couple of a couple of guys, dental students, graduate students, not undergrads. There were graduate students who uh, were classmates and had been friends back in, I think they did undergrad at North Dakota. And one of them was the treasurer and one of them was the president. Maybe the father of one of them had been at the co-op years before and that's why they came there but anyway they kind of like I think they played some role in saving the co-op from being sold off but consolidation of power was or I should say consolidation of involvement I, I'm not sure that they were hoarding power so much as nobody else wanted to do anything and they were willing to so things got done and when my generation was kind of recruited in you know with Jeff as the recruitment person and and some of the other you know people who took out those officer positions after uh after those two guys took off, that was where this this focus on spreading out the responsibility and trying to you know uh, make it a little bit easier on the on the management and protect the institution. Frankly, you don't want the co-op to be resting on whether or not these two people live there and whether or not they're doing their jobs because they're going to move out eventually. And then what what then? So if you spread the knowledge around, you spend the responsibility around, and you be really really transparent about what the situation is then the place is going to be more stable. And that was really, I think, the way that that we were trying to do it in the early 90s. And the reason that we kind of like, well, we we really brought in, we expanded the meal program a lot. Also started a food manager position that didn't really exist, I don't think, at the time I moved in. But we ended up getting a a relationship with North Country Co-op uh, at the time that they were moving, they were going through a lot of really stressful times because Augsburg was kicking them out of their space at 22nd and Riverside. And they were moving their all of their inventory and logistics and they were buying a building at 20th and Riverside. And we we donated several thousand dollars to seed their um, their their funds. And we got uh, all of those bins that were down in the kitchen that may have been there when you were there, Max, uh, came from the old North Country store uh, when they could no longer use those bins for code reasons. Yeah, thank you for establishing that, because that was the reason I moved into the co-op was the food program. And the people oh, who really, yeah, yes, okay. I, when I found out that you were buying things in bulk from North Country Cooperative Partners and and uh-huh. it was just like all you can eat bananas, all you can eat vegetables. I was like, yeah. why doesn't everyone do this? This is amazing. Yep, yep. Yeah, it was really beautiful. And I mean, most, it, most importantly, yeah. all, all you can eat chocolate chips. That's that's the big <laughs> Do you remember this? Do you remember this incident with the the peach sherbet? 
Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Ian, man, you if you had like one point of contention with the co-op, it was that Peach Sherbert. Uh, I, was, I was mad. I was mad. Yeah, I re- I remember. Yeah, you being really upset about. It. So yeah, there was there was like I don't know. Um, there would be a big five gallon tub of ice cream that we could order yeah. once per quarter, once per semester, and whoever was the food manager decided on peach yogurt, and boy, did not sit well with you. Uh, no, no, that no. I remember it a little bit differently. Here's what I remember, oh, okay. Mark. I remember. I think it came on Mondays. It came with the dairy delivery, and um, okay. So here's what I remember. You would Monday after classes, you would rush back to the co-op to see what the ice cream was. And and as I recall, the ice cream didn't last very long. It was five gallons, but, you know, there's 20 people. And so I think it was gone by yeah. like Tuesday, Tuesday evening. Yeah. And sometimes uh, yeah. it, was, uh, it was something really cool. Like uh, I remember they had a cookies and cream that was really good. Um, and uh-huh. then one time, uh, and every once in a while, they would have a sherbet, ah, like a lime sherbet or something like that, which was okay, but yeah, I, uh-huh. and it wasn't wasn't for me. And then one time, peach peach sherbet showed up, and so I was unhappy about that. <laughs> and then um, the next week, I know, of course, I was looking forward to what we were going to have, and it was peach sherbet again. <laughs> and and then and then a third week. Uh, <laughs> It was peach sherbet again. And this was unusual because usually the dairy guy kind of mixed it up and brought us a variety of stuff. Yeah. And so then after about a month, yeah. somebody somebody cornered the dairy guy when he was when he was delivering the 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 sherbet and said, Hey, you know, some some people are are kind of wondering how come we don't have ice cream? How come it's peach sherbet every month? And he said, Well, I was here a month ago and a girl told me that everyone likes peach sherbet, and that's what you want every week. And then there was a hunt. There was a hunt for the guilty party that said that to the dairy guy. And I don't think we ever found out who it was. But boy, some people were were out to board. I remember that. That's how I remember. When we, when we lived there, we had a policy of no. So there wasn't like a a, a vegan um, like uh, policy, but we did say the house will not buy. I believe it was meat products. So there was a certain amount of like, okay, so I, I think butter or milk was kind of agreed upon. Like this is a staple, quote unquote. But but other than that, like meat, if you're gonna get bacon or anything like that, like it can't it can't use house funds because that is like directly contributing to the murder of animals and things. And I'm not laughing because it's um it's like a not a serious no, no. issue, but I'm laughing because. You know, it's just interesting the particulars about how we uh, um, regulate morality and stuff. Well, it was the same. It was the same yeah. in the '90s. We we didn't have any, yeah. any meat products on the meal plan. No. And I remember the few people that wanted meat, they were fine with buying it on their own, and yep. and that wasn't uh, that wasn't a meal plan expense. And there, there was the the dairy guy. In fact, I believe his name was Mike. I'm going to have to go back and <laughs> see if my notes are right. But I became kind of good friends with him. We got some supplies from. Cisco, um, in addition to, you know, the, the food managers at one point were going over to North country and, and getting supplies from North country, the vegetables and, and other staples and things. But we had a lot of other things that were delivered by, by Cisco. And I think that may have been dairy as well, but I, I could be wrong about that. But, um, I, I forgotten about the dairy guy and his weekly deliveries. And then we also had these, like, we used to call them, uh, 
we used to call it the cow. And it was this, basically, it was like a, a big cafeteria institutional milk dispenser. And yes, the milk machine. Yeah. The milk machine that we called yeah. it. I think I remember Jesse calling it the cow. But anyway, mm. that the little butt would stick out the bottom. You had to cut off the thing and then you'd, yep. you'd lift up the handle and put your glass underneath it. And that's Wait, how you had. had did you have that when you were there? Yes, we had we had a milk yeah. machine, an old fashioned milk machine. Uh, you know, it's a specific type where you lifted up a weight and you know the milk poured the out. Weighted handle. Was it refrigerated? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it. my roommate interviewed the guy who saw that come in. He, his name was R. T. Ravenholt. Charlie interviewed him for the first episode, and he moved in in 1944. Oh wow! There was just so much milk, and they had it in pitchers everywhere, and. Uh, some health department person came in and said, you can't do this. And they were, and they were like, come on. I mean, it's milk. It's a fine. And they were like, no, you have to refrigerate this. And so that's when the machine came. Wow. Wow. Bit of fascinating history. Well, now here, now that's getting into a little bit of of the, the, the subject uh, or the history of the co-op being related to that Midland Dairy Co-op. Midland Dairy Cooperative, yes. Corporation. I think they were involved in some way in funding it. Now, I've been trying to get to the bottom of this because Ravenholt's memory was a little fuzzy, let's say, but on this, but so we know that Midland Cooperatives, I think became, I have to check my notes, it something Daniels, Archer, Archer Daniels, Archer Archer Daniels, Midland, acquired midland but but by that time midland cooperatives it was only a cooperative kind of nominally it it didn't really do cooperative things at the time there was a a woman named miss wish camper who encouraged the co-op to buy the frat in 1939 Mm -hmm. and it was i i'm not sure if she's involved in getting midland to sponsor it but that's as much as we've been able to gather about how the place was started as a co-op right so it was yeah it was i I remember it being a big boarding house for agricultural students and it was more or less sponsored by midland it became land of lakes and so ag students lived there while they were taking classes and uh, maybe that's why there was milk everywhere He said um, there was, yeah, there was a lot but, of med students and there, there was, and so I think the vibe I got was, yeah, there's, there's, there's a heavy agricultural involvement as well. I, uh-huh. I, I think it's worth pointing out that I understood that for a very long time, there was at least one professional person, like a house mother or a cook, which would make it more like a traditional boarding house. You've got somebody preparing meals, you've got somebody you know, uh, maintaining institutional memory, making sure that everything gets paid. He was talking about the house mother, but who had kidney troubles. Mm. Um, but but that's pretty. And she lived in that extension. Yes, we heard that yeah, too. Off the back. Okay. Okay. So so that that's confirmed with you guys. That's good to yeah. know. Yeah. And my mom, who uh, she died last February, but she was uh, a student at the University of Minnesota in the. Uh, early 60s, and then again as a graduate student in the late 60s. And when I moved into the co-op in 92, and I just described this place that I was moving into, she recognized that as that was Amiga or that was Amigo. I don't remember if it was Amiga or Amigo that she that she told me, but um, when she was a student in this kind of a commune place, you know, a, a gathering point for protests, and there were some photographs. Uh, war protests, Vietnam War protests. 
that the students co-op is is part of and whether or not the uh, the house mother or the live-in cage caretaker was here at that time i don't know and the person that you that you interviewed was is a little bit familiar to me i mean i think i came across that same name also what was his name again started with an r ravenhold rt ravenhold Ravenhold. Yes, that that name is familiar to me. For some and reason, I, I think I remember Jeff Zeitler talking about that name. That is ringing a bell. The Amiga name, like, comes Amigo, to mind. Amigo, yeah, Amigo. Uh-huh. Because I, I feel like there was so there was a a transient man for a while. I'm not sure if you recently. It was recently, or so he says that his mother was living there during the Vietnam era, and that's how he became familiar with the place. He went on to be um, a wanderer, and, but he came back with a dog, 50. He, he's, he, he called himself Captain Tony. So we all, we all knew him as Captain Tony. And yeah, he, I, I certainly remember Captain Tony as well. He befriended a few people who lived at the co-op. Uh, you would sometimes be invited you know, in, you know, for meals uh, down in the kitchen. Um, I don't remember interacting with him all that much. Um, I don't remember that he had any arrangements for in people's rooms or on the couch in the living room. I don't remember that. If, if it did happen, I, I, I've forgotten or purchased from my mind. I, I just remember that he, he was, Captain Tony was uh, good friends with several of the more longer term, uh, people who, who lived there and who I was good friends with. I, I don't think I can say any more about Captain Tony, but there were other people kind of in that category also who used to come around who were, they were a little bit older and they would, you maybe call them uh, sort of wanderers um, and, and seekers and, and some of the, the, the students who lived at the, at the co-op would befriend them and, and invite them for, for meals. Um, I, one, one other person comes in, comes to my mind, but I had forgotten about Captain Tony. So I'm glad you brought that up. And I did remember that he had a dog also, but I didn't remember that the dog's name was 50. So was it, um, do you remember what the dog looked like? I don't. Yeah. I kind of remember there being a dog that was part of it, but I didn't remember. I barely remembered Captain Tony. There was at least one other person who was very much in that category of being like a wanderer, um, you know, kind of like a a counselor of sorts to the younger people. and, And he was invited around and a very, you know, very peaceful person, very kind person. I, when I worked at, I worked for a while at the, at the new Riverside cafe over uh, on the West bank at the Cedar and Riverside. And, and I used to see, see this other fellow over there to come over for the free meals that we would give out. And that was kind of along with North country co-op, uh, the new Riverside cafe was kind of a, a, a gathering place for, you know, people who were protesting the, the establishment and had other ideas, you know, the co-op definitely kind of like was sort of the, one of the East bank kind of gathering points. Whereas you had the new Riverside cafe and North country on the West bank. This brings up the uh, territory of um, the students co-op is like a countercultural hub. Yeah. And I wonder yeah. if any, if either of you would like to share any stories that you remember about that. Sure. There was always that vibe to, to the co-op. I think if you were, politically conservative or religiously conservative or a very traditional person, it wouldn't be a place that you'd be comfortable. I think it obviously was a very socially liberal place. You know, we talked about diversity. We didn't talk much about 
you know, LGBT uh, questions. But but my recollection is that I don't want to say nobody cared. That's not quite the right term. But you could do what you wanted in terms of your identity. And as we discussed before, as long as you did your house job and you were polite and you didn't have any conflicts with people, there was no judgment of, of what you did. Benjamin Franklin, uh, the great equalizer. Uh, yes, I suppose. You know, these are little minor anecdotes that I remember. There was there was a guy who chose to start dressing as a woman while he was at the co-op. And I just remember sitting at the breakfast table one day and somebody said, oh, yeah, did you notice he's wearing women's clothes? And somebody else said, yep. And that was the end of the discussion. You know, I mean, <laughs> you, you notice you, you lived in the house. If somebody, you know, was dating a girl and suddenly he was dating a guy, of course you noticed and people gossip. By but, the way, if any of you are listening and you were one of these people, I want to interview you. So please, please contact me. Descent underground at gmail.com. I would hope anybody in those in those situations, you know, uh, never felt any 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 pressure or judgment. I certainly didn't didn't see that. So so socially liberal, that that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. In terms of of, of politics, um I probably, you know, the 90s, we didn't have something like Vietnam that that polarized people in the way that some other generations did. I remember people were always interested in alternatives. Uh, th- there was a guy at the co-op who who really pitched us on starting an algae farm, which which we all sort of joked about. But you know, the idea was that uh, you know we need to find more energy efficient ways to feed ourselves and everybody else, and and we all. So this was for like, food. It wasn't like yes, an energy yes, or he, cleaning. He was, it was for feeding people. No, he wanted us to start growing algae to get big tanks and start growing algae in the co-op to 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 eat. And um, that's wow. a hard sell. That's I, a hard. I, I, I forgot. I forgot about that one, Ian. <laughs> that's a hard sell to convince people to eat allergy. So I admire his courage, and and we ultimately decided not to spend any co-op funds on on an allergy farm. But that's the kind of example I remember of of you know you could go to the board meeting and say something like that, and people would people would listen. You know they were they were open to different ideas. I, it just came to my mind first of all that there was another a fellow who who moved in. You know, when when Ian said that we didn't have any political upheavals uh, to to deal with, um, it, it's it's all relative. We had our issues in the '90s, but they they weren't <laughs> anything like what people have been dealing with, certainly for the last couple of years. But I remember the you know the first Iraq War was in I think it was in 1992. We had a veteran of that of that war living at the co-op for a long time. In fact, he became a, a maintenance manager and I'm good friends with him to this day. Went to his wedding and, you know, um, and, and he, he had a very, very military outlook. Yes. He lived at the student's co-op and he was completely fine with people's desire for alternative uh, values and living arrangements, even though he himself, and he was pretty focused on getting his degree and um, had aspirations of law school and, I mean, he was a, he was a real good organizer, and he knew a lot about Maine. He actually drove a tank in, in, the, in the first Gulf War, so he had all these fascinating stories. And that was something that you could not get from the usual people that came through the co-op. I mean, you had to go across the street to the armory. Or I was really surprised that he was never really all that involved in you know uh, the ROTC groups or other veterans affairs kind of things. He was he was a National Guard member. And so he, once a month, he would go off and do a National Guard thing. ROTC is Reserve Officers right. Training Corps? Yes. 
right, come to using that as a bit, bit of a misnomer. He was not an undergrad. He'd already done his undergrad somewhere else, and he had served. He was not in the ROTC program. But with the armory being right across the street from the student's co-op, you would have think that would have been a little bit more of his natural social gathering point, you know. But he didn't really seem to do that. His style as a manager, particularly on workday, kind of butted up against some of the other people who wanted to just do their own thing. And, and he was like, well, no, if we want to get some things done, we got to do it this way. And, you know, he, he was kind of planning it the way that a person from the military would plan it. So he brought a different perspective. Uh, what I was really going to say, though, as an answer to your question, is that the co-op ended up being a springboard for one very motivated group of people who moved down to Verroca, Wisconsin, after they kind of stopped taking classes or were ready to move on. And there was a really big push to create this uh almost co-op too. I mean, there were, there were enough people that moved <gasps> out of the student co-op down to Viroqua. And that was a really a very thriving community down there, in large part because of the people that came out of the student's co-op. And I oh. believe a couple, at least a couple of the people are still there. <gasps> One woman, you know, started a farm. And what? There was a what? Big, you know, they, they ended up getting married. And I went to the wedding, yeah, and several big parties. And They've kind of moved on in various ways, and I'm still friends with some of them, but you go down to Viroqua, and there's a co-op down there, and uh, a woman who worked at the co-op for years had been a very involved member of the student's co-op in the 90s when I was here, and we we were good friends. It's such a shame that that the student's co-op didn't remain in touch with that, because literally for five years, my MO was starting co-op too. But it, I really? guess technically wow. it would have been Co-op 3 because Co-op 2 <laughs> was already started in, how do you spell that? Of Viroqua, Wisconsin. It's V-I-R-O-Q-U-E. Yeah. And do you, um, do you know any? Near La Crosse. Is it called, is it called Co-op 2 or what is it called? No, it's not. I, I was kind of using that as a, a little bit of a, 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 very loosely. I was just saying that there were a lot of people that moved from the student's co-op or flowed through the school, student's co-op that lived down there at one point. So it was kind of like, it felt like the co-op too when I went down there to see, oh, yeah, I haven't seen so-and-so for a long time. And it, it was taking some of the counterculture ideas from the student's co-op even further, specifically in the way of the infrastructure. There were composting toilets and there was yes, um, yes. Bale, houses being built and yeah so i was in the at seward co-op uh last week and i was buying potatoes and i looked in the potato bin and well there's driftless organics and that's my friends that are down in Viroqua that came out of students co-op so the the business is still going and and i suppose i could you know reach out um i just haven't whatever stupid reason um, oh my gosh can we please but, like no, like build up this yeah. little community because i am so yeah. interested in this this is my okay the students club changed my life okay i mean i'm just gonna spilling my guts <laughs> here but like i didn't know i gave up on america i left thinking there's nothing here and when i came back wow. and found the students co-op it was like something magical hidden under our noses um fr- oh, from my wow. perspective Driftwoods Organics, is that what it's called? D-R-I-F-T-L-E-S-S. Driftless Organics. If you go into Seward Co-op and you go to the potato bin, you're going to see some bags of potatoes. 
that say Dripless Organics, and that's the name of the farm, I should say. It's probably not a, a co-op or a, um, a, I, they may have had a CSA model, but I've never been part of that CSA model. Um, I've been a member of another CSA in Wisconsin. There's another thing here I'll just mention before I really forget quickly is that uh, a good friend of mine recently made a film called uh, The Co-op Wars, which has been accepted into a bunch of film festivals. And um, he, he lived in Minneapolis for a long time. He never lived at the co-op. Um, but he was uh, very, very, very involved at North Country Co-op during those years when the students co-op was helping out North Country and helping it try to keep afloat. His name is Eric Essie. He talks about the co-op movement in the Twin Cities, particularly the grocery uh, co-op movement, but also, you know, bleeds into the issues of housing and, and other kinds of, of co-ops too. And it's really, really a good foundation. It has a lot of really good interview footage with people from the 60s yeah. and 70s who were instrumental in starting the co-op movement uh, that have kind of grown into distribution companies like Co-op Partners, for example, now is a very well-established grocery distribution co-op. That's it what I was going to try has- to get some clarity on because now you keep mentioning yeah. North Country. And I conflated yeah. it in my mind, but actually the place that we would go get our bulk groceries is Co-op Partners Warehouse. Okay. So yep. what is okay. North Country Co-op exactly? Or what was it and what has it become, uh, if anything? Now, was wow, this- Oh man. What a, that's a very hard thing to to, set, to synthesize into a soundbite. Okay. Where did you go? Um, where did you, when people were, when people were leaving the students co-op to go help out North Country Co-op, where was that physically? Yeah. Okay. It was, um, it, it's a co-op grocery store that started at the People's Center on the inter- at the intersection of Riverside and 20th, which is now a health clinic. But then it very quickly outgrew, and it was called the People's Pantry at that time. And then it outgrew that, and then they got a storefront in a building that was owned by Augsburg College at the intersection of 22nd Avenue and Riverside. And they were there for, I don't know, a long time. I want to say 20 20 some years. Um, and it was a beautiful old building and it they were on the, on the, the street level and it was a, a small, tightly packed co-op and, um, there were apartments above and, um, musicians and artists lived in those apartments. And this was a pretty, very well-established co-op. And I started volunteering there in probably 93 myself. I mean, I, you could, you know, volunteer to unload the blooming prairie shipments on Fridays, for example, and then you could get a discount whenever you went there to shop your incentive to get involved in the co-op and become a working member. It and, sounds related um, to Seward cafe down the street, as well yes, as very, hard times. very, yes, yes. And Seward cafe um, was way more closely related to North country co-op than it was related to its grocery store version, the Seward co-op grocery store that initially started right across the street from the cafe in what is now uh, a hardware store. It was for years, it was well too, but then now it just like within the last maybe six months or a year, it's be, it was hired, it was bought by another person. Now it's called Jack's hardware. Uh, yeah, yeah. Was it, the, it was, is it ACE well too? Yep. Yep. Eight okay. Okay. Two. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Mark yeah. Wellna, one of the brothers just sold out. The other original Wellna is down on Bloomington in like 24th and that's owned by his brother. And so that was Wellna one is on Bloomington and 24th. Wellna two is on basically Riverside and 22nd. But before the Wellna, Jim Wellna is Wellna two, Mark Wellna is Wellna one. Seward co-op grocery store was right across from the cafe. 
at the time that those two organizations kind of split. Seward Co-op Grocery Store kind of was doing his thing. But ideologically, Seward Cafe was a lot more closely related to North Country and to the New Riverside Cafe where I worked. The ideology around North Country was very closely linked with Seward Co-op. And so anyway, kind of fast forwarding to 1990, uh, mid-90s again, I'm going to say 95, 96, um, Augsburg told North Country Co-op they had to move out because Augsburg wanted their building and they were going to tear down the building and build uh, uh, classrooms or something. Bastards. So um, they definitely get into that uh, in Eric's movie, but uh, North Country resisted the offers from Augsburg to integrate them into their new building. North Country could have had a grocery store space in one of these new buildings, but North Country really wanted its own, own autonomy. And at that time, it was really easy to get loans. <laughs> and this is this is tied to, to something that I said earlier that I want to kind of explain a little bit too. So what happened okay. is that North Country Co-op took out a loan and bought a building, the, the building at the intersection of Riverside and 20th. This now, I think uh, Afro Cafe was there for a long time, and now it's called something else. But And I think the African Development Center is there. Anyway, they owned that building. And in order to see the buying of that building, Students Co-op loaned them money and helped them with other aspects of the Whoa. move. And so when people, so when food managers would go get the food, they would get it from North Country, either from the 22nd location or probably more from the new location, which was at 20th and Riverside the guy who just made this film, he was, he was very involved in NCC at that time. Now he lives out in, I think he's actually up in Canada somewhere in Vancouver. I think he's in Vancouver. His, he got married and, and moved out there. His wife has got a, an academic job or something. So he and I worked together at a, at a music school for a little while too. So I became very good friends with Eric, but you should check out that film. The reason that North country was able to buy that building is because in the late 90s and early 2000s, it was re- money was really easy. And if you've watched the, the movie The Big Short, you kind of see the backstory of that. Is that all you had to do was basically be able to fog a mirror and you could get a loan. And, and that was kind of part of the housing policy in the Clinton era in the late 90s. And I was a beneficiary of that. North Country was a beneficiary of that. But the danger was you got into these property ownership situations that were very quickly became unmanageable. And what North Country had was an adjustable rate mortgage. And there was a bloom payment that was due. And it was a lot of money. And and if they missed that, the interest rate was going to kick up really high. And that weird mortgage product, that adjustable rate mortgage product, was ended up being the death knell of of North Country Co-op. And they folded. Shortly after that, Seward Co-op, which was always kind of existing in the background a little bit. They were a little bit more of the mainstream grocery co-op. They just exploded. I mean, to the point where they built a new store and then they very quickly outgrew that store and they had to build another store. And then they had so much money, they opened another location. And that's the friendship store down in, in kind of the central neighborhood. Wow. 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 That is a fantastic chunk of history. Thank you so much. Yeah. And again, the reason I was able to buy condo right out of students co-op is that I, I didn't have to put down like hardly any principal. All I had to do was show I a lived in the same place for a long time. B I'd had a job for a long time, which I had, I'd been working at that point at a, at a bike shop in the West bank. 
I'd been there for years and I had got a little bit of a raise every year and I've been kind of moving up and learning my responsibilities. And I developed some credit. I paid off the student loan that I took out in the early nineties. Um, I slowly chipped away at that student loan and that helped my credit. And so I had really good credit, even though I had no credit cards, but so I got a loan and I moved into my own condominium. That's awesome. Did you have a, like a, a mentor that at the students co-op that kind of gave you the skills you needed to work at the bike shop? That's a really good question. Well, the, I, I said that these two guys, one of them kind of recruited me to be the treasurer in the early nineties. He and his buddy were kind of graduating from dental school and they were going on to do start their lives. And as far as I know, they've just done the normal thing and they were pretty, pretty conservative guys actually. But I got some basic orientation training on the treasurer responsibilities, which at that time was, you know, posting the rent notices and paying the bills. It was very, very simple. Uh, pretty quickly, he was on to doing his, uh, you know, becoming a professional dentist. I, I really lost touch with the person who recruited me to the treasurer pretty quickly. I ended up uh, kind of figuring a lot, of, a lot of it out myself, but then also um, my dad was a CPA. So, uh, I don't know. And I was a math major, <laughs> so I don't know, just hmm. the idea of working with numbers and charts and figuring that out, that kind of came a little bit naturally to me, but I, I was kind of much more of an arithmetic person. I was a bookkeeper kind of person. I was not a theoretical math person the way my friend Nick was. And hmm. so very quickly it, it became obvious that, yeah, I was well-suited to this very discreet kind of arithmetic of being a bookkeeper and not doing the theoretical math that my major was in. But I had mentioned that I, I went to work at the New Riverside Cafe. At, when I stopped, kind of stopped taking classes, I, I, I became very interested in this New Riverside Cafe on the West Bank uh, for the music as much as for the, the co-op culture. Right. And I worked there for a little while and I very quickly kind of learned things within the cafe there related to bookkeeping. We had our own system of meal credits <laughs> at the New Riverside Cafe restaurant. It was kind of, you know, not that different from the the system of credits and fines that we had at the students co-op. So I was kind of comparing those two things as I was developing my skills. When I left the Riverside Cafe and went to work at the Freewheel Bike Co-op. I was going to ask if, if it was Freewheel. Freewheel came to my mind. I was like, why do I have Freewheel yeah. Bike Co-op on my mind? Like, uh, Yeah, it's still there. It's not a co-op anymore. I mean, in 1994, when I started at Freewheel, uh, well, I was actually in the spring of 95, um, it was still a co-op and it remained a co-op until 2000. When I worked there, I slowly worked my way kind of into the back office and I became good friends with a bookkeeper there. And he was not a member of the co-op himself. He was, he was a CPA who was hired to do the books, but he made a, a very savvy a business decision to buy out all the members of the co-op. Buy Which usually out the means predatory. The, the members of the co-op at that point were very, very ready to move on with their lives. That bicycle co-op had been, uh, was very thriving in the eighties. as a, a lot of other co-ops were too. I mean, North country and, you know, the Seward uh, uh, cafe co-op at uh, the new Riverside cafe all of these co-ops were very, very vibrant, like in the 70s and the 80s. But the people who started them were getting on in years. They had families and the bike shop was no exception. So at the end of the 90s, the freewheel bike co-op folks were 
wanting more financial security and they accepted the offer and sold their name and their inventory to the person who had been their bookkeeper. And I had become good friends with him. And he played a very, very influential role in training me to basically do the job that he had done for the free will bike co-op. So under this new organization, free will incorporated, I was accounts payable. I was, I, I counted all the registers. I did the deposits. I managed the credit cards. I did HR things. So that was where my skills exponentially took off. And I was still living at the co-op at the time. And I was at the co-op for another two years. So I didn't move out until the end of 2002, but I was learning all of these things at Freewheel that became very applicable to the students co-op in say 2001 into 2002. I forget who, who was picking up the ball there, but um, I kind of tried to leave some knowledge and I've, and I've run into some folks over the years who have kind of remembered seeing my name. In fact, there's one really fun story about my brother running into some people down in Ecuador they were all working for the same company. My brother was working for this company and these two people were working for the company. And they looked at my brother's last name and they said, I think I, I know a person by that name. Are you related to Mark Ambrose? And they were like, and my brother was like, yeah, that's my brother. And they're like, Oh, wow. Well, we lived at the students co-op and we saw his name all over the place. And so through my brother, I got in touch with these people and we ended up kind of comparing notes and, and it was really a fun exchange. And I'm, you know, I'm still in touch with this, this Charles and Jilla. That's fantastic. So, um, yeah, no, uh, I don't. It, I didn't it, mean it, to imply that co-ops don't have an expiry date. They absolutely do. When everyone, you know, when the exhaustion hits or whatever, just people yeah. are ready to move on, or it transitions to a commune, or it transitions to a business, or whatever. That Some subject is totally the subject of of the co-op wars film that Eric made. I would highly recommend that you you. Uh, Anybody who hears about that movie that's interested in the students' co-op or co-op movements in general, see that film. It's really, really good. I don't remember in the film that students' co-op is mentioned. I really don't think it is, but it's certainly related. There's crossover. Well, thank you. Okay, so we'll we'll definitely put that in the show notes and do what we can to plug that. But back to the students' co-op. Um, well, one thing I wanted to add while I was thinking about it, there's a website called newspapers.com, which is a, you know, a growing archive, and it costs money, but they typically have a, like a free 30 day or 60 day thing. And it has the Star Tribune. And I think it has some other Minnesota papers. If you type in 1721 University Avenue, you get a wealth of historical information. And I did that while we were talking. And I see here us as the Amigo Club in 1945. Um, I see another one calling it uh, Psi Upsilon, which is the frat it was before it was the co-op. Yep. That's uh, November 1937. And then here's a much more recent story from 2017, the co-op taking a stand on sexual violence uh, on frat row. So a lot of good stuff uh, that somebody probably should go through. That's a great idea. And maybe in future episodes, if I don't have an interview lined up, I can just dive into that for the archives. Great. What was social life like in the co-op in the 90s? Next episode, we'll explore that. I hope you've been enjoying these episodes. If you'd like to check out the show notes, you can now go to podcast.studentscoop.org. Thanks to Brendan Nee.